welcome to Uproar in the Studio, your Bed-Stuy-based Chinese blockbuster podcast. I'm Noah. I'm Reza. I'm Andrew. And this is your, well, a little bit late monthly bonus episode. How late is this? How late is this going to go out? We skipped two months, maybe? But, like, we don't exactly follow the Gregorian calendar <laughs> on this podcast here. We're not even a Julian calendar podcast. We have actually, with your Patreon help, established our own calendar. And it cost us nothing, which is great. <laughs> well, except for renting an apartment, building a mind space. Buying green tea. <laughs> yeah. We live in our own time zone now. It's a small part of bed but it is our own time zone. And if you like the show and can afford it, we would really appreciate it if you would contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash uproar in the studio. This week we're talking about Shui Hark's The Taking of Tiger Mountain, released in 2014. You don't have to see it, but if you want to watch it without spoilers, listen to the show afterwards. In our first entirely in-person recorded conversation, we talked about the movie with five-time guest, reigning champ, last king of Scotland, conqueror of all the mountains, poet Yi Wu. Here's our conversation. Based on the cultural revolution era peaking opera of the same name, The Taking of Tiger Mountain follows a band of PLA operatives as they fight to liberate a peasant village under the control of an eccentric warlord, Lord Hawk. The story centers in around one soldier, Yang Zirong, who breaks with his captain's wishes to infiltrate Hawk's ranks as a spy and eventually becomes his chief of security. After gaining the trust of the bandits, Zirong sends word of an opportunity to attack at Hawk's birthday celebration. The PLA soldiers take Tiger Mountain and restore peace. Ruthless murders, tech bros, and you know there's gotta be a CGI tiger this is The Taking of Tiger Mountain. Had you, like, come across The Taking of Tiger Mountain before, like, the story? I mean, I knew the title before, like, when I was China, it was, like, a very famous title, but I never really watched either of the Peking Opera or the movie. The movie was more recent, but the Peking Opera, that was very popular during the Cultural Revolution. I did watch part of the opera as well just to be more familiar while I was researching about the, the subject. The opera was, uh, I would say the movie was much less propagandistic than, than the opera was. Interesting. Like, what, what were the major differences? Well, I mean, it's called Peking Opera, but actually it's more like a musical because people talk in it. There are, like, people who talk as well as action as well. Like, mo- mostly it's singing, like, they sing patriotic songs in the Beijing dialect. And uh, in that one, there was a lot of, yeah, uh, there was a lot of praise of Mao and Communist Party and how, like, class struggle and all of that stuff back back in, in opera but in the movie that's kind of very temp, temp down like yeah, it's really yeah. light there's not really a whole lot of i don't even think that you, you've seen an image of mao once am i wrong about that yeah and, and it really there's a lot of element of a western like outlaw western movie in this 2024 film than than any like chinese movie i've seen maybe like werewolf 2 i watched werewolf 2 Wolf Warrior 2? Wolf Warrior 2. Oh my god, I said Wolf Warrior 2. <laughs> I, I thought Wolf Warrior 2. In, in Chinese, it's called Zhanlang R, which is like Warwolf. Uh, okay. Wolf Warrior. Same thing, <laughs> but all right. 
Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean there are some similarities between the two in terms of action, but yeah, like the image of this outlaw guy, the hawk. <laughs> I mean he resembles more like a Western, like Jesse James, than some guy like in, in the Chinese folklore. Wasn't there a period where there were like a whole bunch of these actual warlords, not as cartoonish and like maybe <laughs> Japanese anime almost uh, as this guy? Yeah, I mean, not as uh, as singularly dedicated to a strange animal theme. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it was those like in, ter- in terms of political and like military instability, there are like those warlords who like occupy this mountain. They kind of like mix between like a mafia, like a criminal gang, and like except the, the fact that they're more territorial, mm-hmm. they actually control an area, and like people know who they are. Like they're, they're openly offering, they, they often do commit the crimes that you see in the movie, like looting, thing, like taking people's things, and like trigger warning about. They're, they're, they do commit like rape and other 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 type of crime that you've seen. But I mean, but and in history, not all of the warlords are like as like cartoonish, like evil as, <laughs> as you see in the movie. I mean, there's there's still that propaganda about like how how everything they do is bad. There's no human element of it. I mean, the warlords in in the Republican era of China, they they did commit a lot of crimes, but they also did like say fun education in the area. <laughs> but I mean, of course, that that guy. I mean, that guy's fictional. I mean, he he's a very small guy. I mean, he he probably didn't have the resource to do that kind of like charity charity thing, but. I mean, mafias in in the United States, at least, have also famously been like very involved in like public works projects and and their own communities. I felt like the Tiger Mountain like outlaw bandits were, they felt very coded as like Mongolian type. Is that a thing? I I wrote down in my notes these are the villains from Mulan. Yeah, very much right. Like the horses. Which I guess is sort of like locate because of the location, but well, the furs versus like the fabrics, yeah, uh, fabric uniforms of the uh, PLA officers. Well, actually, I, I didn't think about that, but that that could be right in terms of their tattoos and that, that those yeah, kind of tattoos, those kind of uh, appearance do not really appear in the in the opera, despite the fact that like Peking Opera is very famous for face painting, but in in that one, it, it, it's kind of kind of subdued in terms of face painting. But um, so, have you guys heard of the Eight model model plays or whatever model theater. Yes, but talk about that. <laughs> so yeah, the thing of Tiger Mountain is one of those because uh, Mao's wife Jiang Qing was a was an actress before she joined the Communist Party, and so she was very interested in like, literature and arts and development of those. Uh, so she kind of selected those eight plays or, or opera as work of theater and those are her favorites so she uses her authority to make more people go see those plays at expense of others so. well, they're sort of the ideals of the cultural revolution right they're what culture is meant to be after the cultural revolution is that right yeah yeah although like one of the curious things i've seen it kind of confirms like my views of that period is that if you go like browse the plot of those like majority of them is about like military battles it's about like combat against the Japanese or the bandits as this one is Oregon or there, there, I think there are two I mean I could be wrong but there are a couple of them like are plays about how like courageous workers battle like spies or saboteurs but there's not a lot of uh, I think none of them is about actual workers like working class labor class struggle like, so there's no play about a strike well, it's interesting, so, though, because the um, I was reading a little bit about the spy character in this movie and the guy who he's based on, mm-hmm. and it seems like, just reading into the sort of actual history of the, the guy, it, it seems like they chose stories about people who had impeccable working-class stories, you know, like father was a iron worker or something, mother was like a, some other sort of proper working-class working person. 
And so, like, in, in a broader sense, maybe the, the focus is on the working class who end up fighting for the communist movement. I mean, it, it does. They do kind of say they're the working class party and the heroes tend to be workers, but there's no, like, capitalist. Like, mm-hmm. it, this guy's a bandit. He's not, like, a owner of some factory or whatever. So, like, this kind of... Because in, in history, in the early Communist Party period, in, in mm-hmm. ni- 1921, when the party was founded, they did really do a lot of strikes in the cities. Like, they, they organized workers into, like, communist unions. <laughs> but after 1927, when uh, Chiang Kai-shek just cracked down on, on CCP, when he killed all the party members and pretty much drove them underground. After that, uh, I think the they kind of de-emphasized the urban labor movement. They're, they're more, they're, they kind of focus more on the military because... Uh, I think the August 1st was uh, the founder of the PLA, and that's what was known as the Nanchang Uprising, and where one of their pro-CCP army in the National Army seceded and became their own army. I've seen other things that take, or I've seen another thing, um, the, the Yellow Earth, have you seen that? Just uh, It takes another similar approach to this, where you only really have one PLA officer, but he's going to this village that's like in the far reaches of China, where just completely detached both in terms of economy, in terms of culture, in terms of everything from uh, most of what's associated with mainland China. And this movie felt like it was similar in that regard, that it was portraying the PLA not necessarily as a force against capitalism or against an outside, uh, or, you know, against an enemy ideology, but as a force where the primary goal in this film is for the sake of unifying China, taking the parts of China that are out far out of the reaches of what the previous government was interested in and pulling them into the fold saying you don't have to be alone in this wasteland anymore you have this formal protection yeah i think i think you got if you pretty much summarize it and like they i mean they they really emphasize the theme of national liberation rather than just like working class liberation so it's the national consolidation i guess but one thing like that did confuse me about this and you mentioned earlier that you felt like this was a particularly westernized film? I mean, I, wa- I guess one thing that stood out to me was how kind of sexless it was, even though it was they very much introduced a, that nurse character to be like so probably like a romantic interest for the it, PLA. And in the book that the, the opera is based on, she is. But the opera is what desexualized it, apparently. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, it, it was just odd because there were so many like camera shots where it looked like there was going to be something romantic happening, but it was like Justice League-level sexless. So in the original opera, there is a there is a woman who who's like a young woman. She had her family like killed and brutalized by the by the hawk, and like she had to pretend to be a boy who cannot talk. and And I think that character might have been tran- might have been transposed to like the kid, because oh, the kid is, is not in the the kid was not in the original opera. And well, they they needed a grandfather for the frame narrative. Yeah, <laughs> the the modern day Chinatown, New York frame narrative. The grandson who now works in Silicon Valley. Well, no, he works in Chinatown, but for some. But Silicon he's going Valley. to Silicon. Oh. Yeah, yeah, or maybe, maybe he's moving out to like California. So like the natural progression of the Chinese state. <laughs> the Very next much. stage of the Communist Party is Uber. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then there's there's the the uh, review you sent by this guy named Grady something. Grady, uh, Grady. For, former guest of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Grady. He he really discovered like more of the irony of of, of the movie. Like I when, when I was watching, I didn't really detect at the time, but like he really says it, it makes the 
Jimmy at the center of the film and think his imagination as opposed to trying to portray like uh, like history as as the author wants to show history. That's interesting. I feel like you have to talk about the the ending of the movie if you're going to talk <laughs> about that. The ending of this film is incredibly strange. Uh, there are two endings, kind of Chinese action army flick style. The uh, protagonist slides behind the hawk, or th- is it the raven or the hawk? I'm sorry. The hawk, the hawk. <laughs> he, he slides behind the hawk. He like <laughs> plants. <hawk>. Yeah. <laughs> he, he slides behind him. He plants three bullets into him. He sinks to the floor. He dies. Um, it's very action movie in a subtle way. And then. <laughs> Well, you know, in a more subtle way. And uh, then after that, you know, shortly after the credits are rolling, we have the director, and then the frame narrative comes back in. And you have this guy who started off the movie watching the opera sit down at a table. Sorry, just to just to be clear, this is the guy from X-Files 3. Yeah. Okay, so you have the guy from X-Files 3. He's sitting down at the table with... The child who is supposed to be his grandfather and, you know, his avatar in this larger story that uh, we're seeing it through, I guess, this perspective of stories that he's been told. So he sits there as the boy from the film and then is joined by in three massive tables in his grandmother's kitchen, all of the other PLA members from the movie. And they sit down and they start talking. The The little boy is talking as if he's an old man to uh, to the X-Files 3 guy. And <laughs> suddenly we jump back into the plot and there's an entire alternative ending where it's not just the, the three simple bullets to take the guy down, but a long, expensive... <laughs> and again, like, long. This is, like, five minutes long at least. More. More. This this fight scene <laughs> on like a World War Two style plane in which he's just battling this <laughs> Lord Hawk to the death until he drops him off of a cliff <laughs> into the flaming wreckage of the plane that they just crashed. But they don't want to portray him as like purely a bad guy, so he doesn't like intentionally drop him off. You know, it's one of those sequences where like he's holding his hand, he's hanging off the cliff, and then Lord Hawk for some reason is like "fuck you" and shoots. <laughs> then drops. Yeah, like also, I don't think in 1946 China, the, like a small time warlords, could afford an, an airplane. And back then, the airplane had to be like American made, or like because China has doesn't really have an airplane. Well, what's interesting about these the the warlords and the bandits in this movie is I think they're at least in the costuming of Lord Hawk. Like I mentioned, there seems to be almost like an anime like quality to it. I think they're coded as like either Japanese collaborators or, like, you know, post-Japanese. So, like, maybe the Japanese brought an airplane. I think I actually say that specifically in the telling of the the story that turns back into this whole massive fight scene that, from, well, from the beginning of it, it's known that these bandits are camped out in an old Japanese fortress that they've just taken over since the Japanese left. And I think they say in the, the uh, like, at the dinner table, or the X-File 3 guy says it in a voiceover because they need to justify it somehow, just that um, the Japanese had a plane there, or the Japanese had uh, an airfield inside the thing. Yeah, I think, I think they did say that, though. That yeah. The, yeah, that they left an airfield with one airplane. <laughs> <laughs> one little biplane. And that airplane was, like, wildly resilient because it was kind of just, like, rolling on its side for at least four minutes of that five-minute <laughs> sequence. <laughs> And then was hanging off the cliff for a pretty 
another at least 45 seconds before it fell to its death. Very Mission Impossible. Extremely. I don't remember which one it is, but that was almost shot for shot. That one. I think Fallout. The the latest one. one. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's interesting about that second ending to me is that, like, it's a sort of... This this movie comes out at an interesting time, right? It's it's 2013 or 2014, 14. and it's we're tilting away from like propaganda movies, like the pre Skyfall pilot movies that I've watched, you know, and we're tilting towards we're not quite at the Wolf Warrior levels, but we do have a whole bunch of like we have Chekhov's slow mo bazooka, you know, <laughs> you see a bunch of people carrying bazookas, you know, it's gonna be a slow mo bazooka, you have. At the beginning, they announce that they've found a bandit horde of ammunition. We have 14,000 bullets and 500 uh, grenades. All of which are filmed in slow motion. (laughs) Slow motion bullet tracking. Like, I think a lot of things in this movie, they were okay with just being like, it's a cartoon. You know, I think like... They were cool with it. Yeah. The the costuming really stood out for me in that way. Because all the costuming, just like both... The hairstyling in particular. The hairstyling was all very cartoonish, particularly with the kid and with Lord Hawk. His his hairstyling was... So just for listeners, his hairstyle was a horseshoe, but it was just standing straight up, so it was kind of like a crown, um, and it was fantastic. Um, but but with the, like, the PLA officers, they were all very clean all the time. Like All of their suits were very clean. All of the bandits were like dirty and smudged and grimy and like just heavy furs all over them. So there was just this really stark contrast and this cartoonish uh, painting of all of these characters. And I, I wonder if that effect that you were like you picked up in Grady's review of this of like, I, I wonder if the cartoonishness is meant to emphasize just how this is a narrative that, you know, these new Silicon Valley immigrant kids tell themselves about, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I can see that now. Think about, because I was saying the, the hawk resembles Jason James, but now I, I sound corrected. It more, think about the, the compound that he, he lived in. Do you just remind me of uh, Ernest Blofeld from from James Bond? Ernest Stavros Blofeld. <laughs> Blofeld, and he because in, in the beginning, like the Hulk, his face wasn't really completely shown. Like it, it was only, he only appeared at, at later, so that's kind of like the the guy with the cat, you know. Mm-hmm. So like, and he's hidden. He's very uh, like cloistered. Like he, there's not he doesn't really talk a lot in the beginning until the, the later. So people kind of people had this. Uh, his followers have this fancy image of him as this great leader who who knows everything, but he he just like he gives very simple command and he had an animal which like which like uh like well, it does manage to like peck people's eyes out though that's <laughs> yeah. like that's something uh yes yeah, it's, it's better than, better than the cat you know and he yeah and, and the, the villain and his followers uh i think because uh, back then when I was browsing this website called TV Tropes, if you, if you go, uh, there's a there's a term called the mooks. A uh, lot, lot of uh, so so mooks are people who like lesser villains who are dressed in the same way and they're like expendable. Like they are. Like, does that stand you know. for like massive something computer generated? Like, uh, I mean, it didn't have to. Like in very old movies, there are always people who are who are, who are mooks who are like, for example, the defo- the people who work for. Uh, James Bond villain, you know they they all kind of uh, cover their faces and like the Oompa Loompas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and yes. <laughs> and you know even though like at, at the alternative ending like he totally like for, forgive and get, spare uh hawk right but i mean he, he didn't in the end but like he would never think a second to spare a mook right some random random dude fighting for the hawk he would so never many see. people die in this movie there's a bit where like they they have a trap where the where these mooks essentially are riding into town and they fall into like a little hole they've pre-dug and covered and they just throw grenades in there and start shooting like so many horses and people die in this movie but by the time the pla actually get to the to the tiger mountain castle place they do continue like at least three times mention that we're the pla disarm and we won't hurt you very much in like operation red sea sort of you know like we're not here to kill you we're here to consolidate the state <laughs> just give up the the sort of microcosm that it creates where it's just the pla coming in and uh saying this in this fortress and this just very two sides one-dimensional conflict that's going on it's interesting because it is portraying something on such a grand scale but it does make it feel so small like this mountain is the only thing that exists in this movie that's as far as the world goes the pla is representative of a larger china but that doesn't exist here this is really it and i guess it feels like you are watching something on a stage in that regard because the walls are very apparent and uh yeah (laughs) i think one thing in the beginning of the movie that made that theme very much like highlighted that theme was when they were just like running out of food and, the, and then the train, you know, the train sequences happened, the Hogwarts Express thing, train sequences. But, like, you know, they basically had nothing to eat until they got supplies sent in from he- headquarters or something. And then they had plenty of bullets, but no potatoes or nothing. rice. And then they walk into the rooms with the hanging corn ears. And, uh, I mean, the... Well, they, the, there was a point where they just cut to a whole bunch of, like, roasted chickens just yeah, on I was a table. Say, <laughs> well, the, the, the hawk people had so much food. Uh, they they were hoarding it. Yeah. Oh, and those, those trap scenes, like those are really funny when the horses fall into a trap. Those scenes were not in the were not in the uh, opera. <laughs> yeah. I think. No, really. <laughs> yeah, in the opera, I think the one the part I watched, they just had. I mean, they they did mention like the commander, the, the kind of equivalent of two or three. He was like, we encountered the bandits, we fought them, and this one guy ran away, and we have to we have to save Yan. So that one was the same. But so like all the battle sequences are in like dialogue? Not not entirely. There, there are, I mean, actually one of the impressive things about the opera was a lot of dance moves, which is kind of like, like gymnastics. And because like they, fight there was, choreography there was no, almost? There was, yeah, pretty much. There was, no, there was no CGI in the opera, of course. So they actually, those are actually impressive. They have to jump and like do, do those very difficult moves. So, and those were kind of replacing the actual fight, like bloody fight scene. The, the, like every, all the bandits and the PLA, this, this uh, fancy choreography. And it's, it's more like sanitized. Of course, there's no, there's no blood. I, th- I like the last sequence like quite a lot you know like the mountain climbing when they were just in like the assassin's creed hoods kind of like sneaking up on the bandits i thought that was like genuinely quite entertaining it takes a long time like even though there are sort of a lot of fight sequences throughout the movie it does take like a long because you know it's going to end with this like climactic mountain battle because it's the taking of tiger mountain and the strategy was amazing the taking bit was amazing i would say like the most out-of-place scenes in this movie were the skiing scenes, which felt like they were out of, like, a goofy 90s Christmas movie. Or an 80s James Bond ski-and-shoot movie. Well, I found it 
it's funny that, that the most out of place thing I, I thought in my mind was those green bazookas. Like the bazookas were always green. <laughs> Uh, well, what should they have been a different color or just i don't know like all the other weapons were in their natural color but i, I don't think like because they're like shiny green bazookas <laughs> <laughs> did, 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 I, I was wondering did they even have rpgs back then beats me but like <laughs> i don't i don't i can't think of a movie that's earlier than this one where like the bazooka is a trope of chinese like blockbusters but it has definitely become that right like at almost any Chinese blockbuster, you like action blockbuster you watch, will have at least one slow motion bazooka. But none of them tops the Wolf Warrior Two bazooka that gets rebounded with to buy a mattress. <laughs> no, yeah, that's true. But even something like fucking Detective Chinatown Two, right, has like a bazooka in in New York. Well, bazookas are just one a really like good name. Like, for something. I've always found it extremely odd that they're actually called bazookas. And then, two, it's just... They, these directors really, really like their bullet tracking. And it, you get to maximize your bullet tracking if it's a fucking, you know, bazooka. And if it's CGI. Yeah. It works. I think I think it's... I'm very happy that they persist with the bazookas. I think it's a... Th- there was a really cool knife tracking shot in this, too. Just lots of weapon tracking. Not only weapon tracking, but also like post weapon blood splatter tracking. <laughs> like very strange slow mo. Yeah, actually, the first weapon tracking movie I watched was Matrix. Was anyone any, any of the, any before that? Or? Oh, I'm I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, the Matrix precedes this by a lot. But like in the Matrix, it feels like there's a storytelling purpose to it, right? Like. They're they're sort of in a virtual world and they've mastered the virtual world so they can move and like because there there is a moment in this one where a guy ducks away from a I think a knife, um, but like there's no reason all of this should be slow mo for these people. Like, no, it's purely stylistic and it's it's good that it is. It's good that they keep up with it. It's really really good. I I wonder if it's worth talking about this like the significance of this being a spy movie because I mean, I I don't know if this is so much the case in like Chinese cinema, but in Soviet cinema, you would only ever, and still to this day, for the most part in like Russian movies, you only ever get spy films set in world war two or like the immediate aftermath or the immediate like pre era. And I think like the new Zhang Yimou movie is like a world war two spy movie and this one in a, in a for a good chunk of it is a spy movie i would say and the and the character in this movie that really pops is the spy character the yang character right like who i think had some confusing introductions in this movie where anytime anybody saw him they kind of gave him a bad look which made me feel like oh this guy's you know he's gonna betray the pla or something but he ends up being the character that shines really yeah, and, and there's also a lot of, uh, I mean, not necessarily just in World War II, but in China, there are a lot of spy uh, TV shows. There are like long, long-running TV shows that were about like people who from the PLA who infiltrated the KMT. Mm-hmm. So th- those were like a running theme. Uh, in I think one of, one of them that I've watched a while ago was uh, I don't know the, like the Chinese name of it. I don't know the English name, but something about hero has no hero has no name about a guy who 
who is actually a CCP member, but he, he became like a high-level KMT member and like sent information to CCP and all, all that stuff. Um, but what they don't show is that a lot of these like real, I mean, th that person actually did live in real life. So what they did not show is that during the Cultural Revolution, a lot of those uh, like underground people who, are, who work for CCP, they they didn't really fare well in those like purges of the party and a lot of for lot of obvious reasons they can't be trusted <laughs> <laughs> right right so uh and a lot, a lot of them were were beaten and imprisoned and there was a famous one named uh pan hanian i think he he was a high level intelligence uh, official in, in the ccp and he apparently his crime uh, was to he contacted a japanese collaborator without telling anyone about it uh, but like he was working for CCP, trying, trying to do his job. But like he contacted Wang Jingwei, who is the guy I I mentioned like last time I, I was a guest here, who who worked like Sun Yat-sen's his secretary, and he eventually became the president of this uh, collaborationist government during World War Two. And so this communist spy chief contacted him, I mean, without telling Mao or or any of the higher officials. And even though he he wasn't trying to defect the Japanese, he was trying to, trying to work for CCP, like trying to get help, get his help somehow. And, and he was sentenced to life in prison because of that. I'm not sure like if that's what they actually wanted to get him for. You know, maybe he, he probably just like, he lost favor of Mao or something. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I got no, no, too no, much into really history. Good. That was really good, but like... I mean, so on the point of like that guy being vaguely untrustworthy of yang being vaguely untrustworthy when he shows up he's he doesn't seem like the classic hero to me you know he seems like almost an anti-hero he's set up as like obvious like he's sent from headquarters he's somehow there to help them but he shows up next to nurse by and like she's clearly good she's helping people she's doing stuff and this guy's like you said just kind of fucking around putzing around He's he's helpful, but he's he's he doesn't seem to be part of the unit from the very start. And his decision to become a spy, as I think Grady mentions in that film comment review, it's not approved of by the PLA structures. He he goes as as um sorry, what was the name of the guy that you mentioned? Oh, no, Pan Hanyan. As Pan Hanyan did, he yeah. um he so he leaves the party. He resigns his role in the PLA to go on the spy mission in the film, Yang does. In the film, Yang kind of initially is like, I want to do this and doesn't get the, you know, confirmation from the Captain 203, but he, it takes like 90 seconds of convincing for 203 to let him do it. Right, but to, in order to do it, like he has to be like, I'm not part of your order system. I resign my position in the PLA. I'm going rogue. And then he gets, he becomes Lord Hawk's head of security. <laughs> <laughs> As spies often do, like the Cambridge spies, um, one of them ended up like head of MI5's like counterintelligence against the Soviets while also funneling information to the Soviets. Yeah, then that, that appeared in uh, Wolf Warrior 2 as, as well. Like he was a ro rogue guy. And, yeah. And, which was not, in, in the original opera for the Tiger Man, that was not the case. He was like just a regular PLA guy who dressed the same as all the other PLA and he didn't have a beard. <laughs> and uh, I think in that scene, he, he basically asked the equivalent of 203 that he, he wanted to infiltrate the, the bandits in Tiger Mountain and 
his commander readily agreed, and he just started singing a song about uh, how the, the party is always right, and I will do everything for the party. Uh, so yeah, there was more like more stereotypical propaganda in, in the opera than, than in the film. There wasn't enough PLA lionizing in this movie, though. They really took on like it wasn't as propagandistic as it really could have been. I think, considering it was a gang of thirty against you know like these bandits that just repurposed a whole cache of Japanese ammunitions from World War Two. Like it just it felt like they had a very toned down, like very grayed out presence in the movie. Even when they were like defending the villagers, which was like, you know, a noble PLA thing to do, but like it, it just there wasn't like heroic music for them. It was very the star in the movie was the guy who defected. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And like it was it was made a point in the movie, which felt kind of weird but i think that's like the winning recipe right i mean that's wolf warrior too well it's interesting too because i the life of director tsui hark is not like he he wasn't born in mainland china i think he grew up in vietnam in like a chinese community went to college in the u.s lived in chinatown like jimmy in this movie he's not like a guy you expect necessarily to be making like a, you know, the PLA propaganda movie, but also he's found his place now, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he's not Johnny Emo. I mean, I'm not familiar with Sue's life story, but he's very different from the the old generation of directors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he was like a Hong Kong guy for a long time in terms of his position in the film industry. But like super decorated as a Hong Kong filmmaker, like a new wave, you know, 90s and even late 80s, I think. Yeah, yeah I think he started in the late 70s, maybe. I mean, like we've seen, I guess, in our second se- or really in all our seasons, these directors kind of. They, they gravitate to where the, like the power and the money is, I guess. But it, it it's interesting that like he was the one to take up the theme of an of a model opera, you know, in this era. And I don't know if there have been other model operas adapted in the same way. Certainly none Certainly that have none done. that has made this much money. Exactly. Yeah. So there is actually a, a, a historical tidbit about uh, kind of relationship between this particular play opera and U- the U.S. So the one of the actresses in the opera, I think, Chi uh, Shu uh, Fang, I think that's her name. I, I could I could have butchered it. Uh, so her character was this young woman who's kind of equivalent to the kid, but I mean she she's older and she's female, so like it's not, not entirely the same. Uh, so that actress who, when she performed this opera in 1988 in the U.S., her and 30 of the crew defected to the U.S. And wow. <laughs> uh, so that was 1988, which was this, the time kind of China became like a transition from being Maoist to like capitalist. Just before Tiananmen. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so like losing faith in the system at that time is, I'll, I'll say, is pretty standard. I mean, no, nobody. I mean, nobody. But, but to be like performing, like you've got all of this propaganda, like propagandistic, like model opera dialogue and lyrics in your head, and you're like. Oh, this isn't working on me anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 I think she founded a she found an opera company in the in the U.S. And I think last year when I went to their website, they were still they were still performing. They were they were planning to do some shows in 2020, but obviously that probably got canceled because of COVID. And oh, maybe 2021 coming back. Uh, <laughs> do they do like model opera stuff, or do, are they doing like what are they doing? Peking opera, so still the the old like classical. Yeah. They don't, they don't do a Western opera. <laughs> How much of the music in this movie 
like it sounded like some of the music was marches or something lifted straight from the opera just in terms of like almost recording quality too like it sounded almost a little grainy i don't know did you guys pick up on that at all I mean, the music, like I said earlier, just didn't really stand out to me in this movie. There just could have been more. It didn't push the message as hard as it... Like, a lot of movies are just pure, you know, like, wow, this is valiant. Overbearing. Is, you know, this is a lot. But this the music, I thought, was very hushed in this. Hmm. Which, I guess, like, in some ways is nice with the very snowy backdrop and all that. I mean, I repeatedly thought of The Hateful Eight when I watched this, to be honest, and like... All those red, red blood splatters the on blood the snow. The very Tarantino. Yeah, and I think well, one one thing that was actually accurate was uh, I think the the hawk guy in the opera, even though it was, it was not as exaggerated cartoonish as it, but he kind of did look like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that sort of hair and stuff. Another movie that this reminded me of was the Batman movie with the ice guy. Oh, Mr. Freeze? Mr. Freeze, yeah. It, like, the last scene especially when the when the plane was just, like, rolling for four minutes reminded <laughs> me of that cave the, from the, uh, the the Mr. Freeze Batman where, like, um, like I, rem- I was reminded of Yu-Gi-Oh! characters. I was reminded of Mr. Freeze. Uh yeah, the cartoonishness the of the movie. I thought the bandits were very much like coded like the Dothraki are in Game of Thrones, you know, like Mongol kind of fucking bandits and shit. But uh, yeah, there's just so much that this movie drew into, really, and did it pretty well for the most part. I, I think the cartoonishness is super interesting, which is, I think, what you're getting at with the sort of Batman and Robin reference, because that movie, as the director Joel Schumacher admitted in the commentary track was literally made to sell toys like they they did as much as possible to sell toys Toys, which i had as a kid same i had i had a little uh remote controlled batmobile from that movie but like i there are no toys that are going to be sold off of the taking of tiger mountain there were i mean (laughs) (laughs) the bazooka Here, kids, buy your slow-mo bazooka. Branded, taking of Tiger Mountain, slow-mo bazooka. Thanks to Yiwu for coming back on the show. Uh, here we are at, once again at, uh, at the end of the episode. Our original music comes from Elliot Saltmarsh and Yehuda of Fist with a PH. And our art comes courtesy of Jay Castro. Follow us on Twitter at China Film Pod. Like the Upper in the Studio Facebook page. And if you can afford it, we would really appreciate it if you would contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Upper in the Studio. We're just trying to, I don't know, pay the month's rent? Help out. And if you feel like it, have some thoughts or suggestions, email us at Upper in the Studio, all one word, at gmail.com. Andrew's supposed to speak now, but I just stole the microphone from him. I just want to say I'm looking at you both right now, and we're recording this, and that's never happened before, and it's very strange to me. Thank you, Uncle Joe. If, you, if you've listened to the end of the episode, this is your, this is your bonus bit. Uh, we'll be back with another bonus bit, another bonus episode next month. Whenever that happens on our calendar. (laughs) But before we leave you, we just want to share some wisdom from the chairman. To read too many books is harmful. We'll see you another month.